Thank you for such hearty singing, and I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 this morning, verses 13 through 16. We continue on in our uh, journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which is part of our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. The last two weeks we have been uh, considering the Beatitudes, but we must move on this morning to, again, a familiar passage, but an important passage concerning the Christian's calling to be salt and light. In August of 1985, the city of New Orleans Recreation Department hosted a party. They were celebrating that all summer they had gone without having a single drowning. As you can imagine, that's, that's a big deal in a city like New Orleans, and they were very excited about that. And I understand that there were at least 100 lifeguards who were there that night at the party, although most were not on duty. Only about four were on duty. But they have their festivities celebrating that they've gone all summer without anyone drowning in a city pool. And that evening, as the party wraps up, and as they begin to clean up, they look down into the pool, and there is Jerome Moody, dressed fully in his suit, He's fallen in the pool and completely drowned. He was at a party filled with lifeguards, and no one saw him, and he died. We have a world of people who are drowning in their sin all around us every day, and we have the gospel that saves. And too often we're busy. We're busy partying through life. We're celebrating. We're never looking down long enough to see those in need. We forget our calling to be salt and light. We hear our King's words once again this morning from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 5. For the sake of context, let's begin reading in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you." You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. These are familiar words. We've heard about our calling to be salt and light, but Lord, would you remind us? Would you plant your word deep in us that we couldn't help but live out 
what you have done in us. That we would do good works, not for your approval, but because we love you. And out of obedience, we would serve you. And people might see our good works and glorify you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We often wonder in our culture today, how can a Christian impact the world around them? How uh, can we make any difference in a decaying and dark society? Well, remember, we've been working our way through the Beatitudes, and Jesus has been teaching about the blessings that are for those who are in Christ, those who come to him poor in spirit, recognizing their need for a Savior. Christ makes a radical change in our lives, and we can truly live out what we call the blessed life, again, defined biblically, not according to the world. We are blessed in Christ, but we recognize that Jesus has called us to be meek, He's called us to be mournful. He's called us to be merciful, but not mighty. The world would look for those who are mighty, but that's not what Jesus calls us to be. We're to be peacemakers in a world that is full of troublemakers. These are not the kind of people that the world elevates to power. Now, we recognize that we must be known not just for what we are on the inside, but who we are on the outside as well. If the first half of Jesus' introduction, remember the Beatitudes and this passage about salt and light, they are all his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. If the Beatitudes talk about who we are on the inside, this idea of salt and light describes how we're to live on the outside. We're not just to live uh, by the character of the Beatitudes, but we're also to live out the conduct of salt and light. We're to be known not just for our attitudes on the inside, but our actions on the outside. And to make this point, Jesus uses two simple metaphors about salt and light. They're not particularly difficult to understand, but they're exceedingly difficult to consistently live out. Someone has said that the point needs little explanation, but it calls for radical and costly application. So if I were to summarize our passage before us this morning, we need to understand that kingdom citizens should be characterized as salty saints and bright believers whose good deeds glorify God in heaven. Kingdom citizens should be characterized as salty saints and bright believers whose good deeds glorify God in heaven. So as we consider this first metaphor that Jesus gives in verse 13, he speaks about salt. And we begin to ask ourselves, well, who who is this you? I hope you heard me emphasizing the you as I read the passage. Who is salt and light? Jesus says it is you and you alone. It is Christians who are salt and light. Remember, crowds are following him. Crowds are listening, but disciples are gathered and leaning in. The disciples, those who are following after Jesus, they, they are the ones who are listening and to whom his message directly applies. The Beatitudes show who we are on the inside. Christ has made this change in his followers, and now we're to live out. We're to be salt and light. He's speaking to his disciples, not the crowds, you and you alone. Now, we take salt for granted today, but salt was a pretty essential part of life in the ancient world. The old Roman named Pliny said that there is nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. We would all appreciate a little more sunshine today, but if you need more salt, you can just go down to the store and pick up as much as you want. Salt is essential, but we don't think a whole lot about it. But in those times, salt was valuable. 
it was so valuable that it was sometimes even used to pay soldiers. That was part of their payment was their salt ration. In fact, our English word salary means salt payment. That's where it came from when they would pay people in salt. Sometimes we talk about a person and say they are the salt of the earth. And what we mean is that they're honest, they're hardworking, they're trustworthy, they are dependable, they're the salt of the earth. But other times we say someone is not worth their salt. What are we communicating then? They're not worth the money that you pay them. They're not worth their salt. But today, if you call somebody salty, you might be communicating something you don't realize. We have to make sure we know what the person who's hearing understands us when we say someone is being salty. In fact, you might call someone salty and they think you're calling them irritable or annoyed. And you could use it in a sentence like this. I asked David a question and he got salty with me. Now, I use David because he wouldn't do that. But that's the way you could use the word. Somebody's being irritable. They would be annoyed with you. You could also use the word to communicate that somebody is, is using profane language. They're speaking offensively. They're cussing. You're saying that person is using salty language. But what did Jesus mean? He's calling his disciples, his imitators, his students to be salt of the earth. Now, if you've heard sermons on this before, if you've read books on, on the Beatitudes and this part of the Sermon on the Mount... Commentators and preachers like to tell you all sorts of ways that salt was used during that time. Both the Bible and ancient history record about a dozen ways that salt could be used. And then they like to apply each of those to the Christian life. Now, I'm not sure that Jesus has all of those in mind when he's giving us this metaphor. But you'll hear things like salt seasons food. So preachers start talking about how Christians are supposed to add zest to life. We're to do things joyfully to the glory of God. We're to live vibrantly. Salt makes one thirsty. So Christian lives should create a thirst in those around us for the true living water, Jesus Christ. Salt can be applied to an open wound, but when you do that, it stings. So too, the presence of Christian conviction in the world can sting a wounded world. Now, all those things are true. They're consistent with the Word of God. But I'm not sure that Jesus is trying to make us think about all of these things when he talks about salt. I'm not sure that they're the primary image that he had in mind. Without going into great detail why, I think that Jesus, when he talks about his disciples being the salt of the earth, he is emphasizing their purifying and the preserving nature of the Christian. The purifying and preserving nature of the Christian. Now, we all know that salt is a preservative. It keeps meat from going bad. If you've ever uh, lived in a place or in a time where you did not have refrigeration, you understand that salt is one of the ways that you can preserve meat. We take refrigeration for granted, but I know some of you may remember a time in your life when you were growing up and you didn't have refrigeration. And so meat was salted and that kept it preserved. It made it last longer. Without refrigeration, meat will quickly become sickening. It will begin to decay unless it's salted down. Meat can be rubbed down with salt and saturated with salt uh, so that its life is preserved and you can extend the length of time that it can be eaten. Now, even though we all have refrigeration today, we still are familiar with this idea through things like beef jerky and things like that. You understand you can get a package of beef jerky and I don't know how long they've lasted because I never test them that long, but they're supposed to last a really long time because they're salted down. Christ says that Christians are supposed to be that way. 
we are a preservative. We're to be salty saints. Now, have you ever noticed this purifying effect? Have you been around someone and you noticed your presence as a Christian has purified that moment? It may happen at work. A coworker stubs their a toe. They hit their thumb with a hammer, and you know that they've got all sorts of words going on in their mind, but they won't say them out loud because they know that you're a Christian. You understand, I'm not alone. This isn't just pastors that this happens to. Sometimes people clean up their act when they're around Christians. And to be honest, I used to get annoyed by that. I used to think in my head, well, listen, God is the one who's watching. He's the one you're offending. You need to be more concerned about him than you are about me. Until I began to study this passage. And I thought, God is saying this is the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to be a preserving effect on the society around us. Now, don't misunderstand. It doesn't mean people are saved just because they're around Christians. Just because they clean up their act when they're around us doesn't mean anything uh, like that will save them, but it restrains them. It restrains them from sinning worse than they normally would because of Christian presence around them. If you look back at history and you see the French Revolution, the French Revolution was exceedingly bloody and violent and godless. You look at the American Revolution and the English Revolution, while certainly there was violence involved, many people believe that there was one thing that made the difference between the French Revolution and the English Revolution. That was the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield, and the difference that it made when Christians started living like the salt of the earth. It restrained evil. Even as they were going through turbulent uh, revolutionary times, things didn't look in England the way they did in France. Many people would call that the preserving influence of the Christian. Well, what about when we fail to live as a preservative? What about when a Christian fails to be salty? Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Those of you who enjoyed chemistry class back in the day, I'm assuming people like that do exist. Those of you who enjoyed chemistry class, you may remember that sodium chloride, this thing that we call salt, is actually a very stable compound, that it won't uh, be diluted, it won't lose its saltiness very easily. It's not in danger of not being salt. That's because we live in a time when we get the pure stuff very easily. It can be refined very easily. But as I understand it, that salt in Jesus' day would actually contain a whole lot more than just sodium chloride. Think about it. They're harvesting this from the earth around them. Places like the Dead Sea, you're picking up a white rock-looking thing, and it looks like a big old hunk of salt, a salt rock, and it's got sodium chloride in it, but there's other stuff in it too. And I'm told that sodium chloride is actually very soluble. That means when it gets wet, the salt is the first thing to go. And then you're left with something that looks like salt, but is not salty at all. It's worthless. I think Jesus is warning us here. We must think about it for a moment when we consider salt that has lost its taste. He's warning us against nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity. That is Christianity in name only. He's saying salt that is salt in name only. It's not actually salty. It's worthless. It should be thrown out. There's a type of Christianity. It goes by the name of Christianity that is Christian in name only. You can see it as people stand up and tout their Christian virtues, but as you listen to them, they have no gospel present in their teaching. 
in their preaching. You can see evidence of this when you see hundreds of people on a church roll, and they're not in church anywhere. Not just not church here, they're not in church anywhere. They're Christian in name only. If you run into people like this who say, oh, yes, yes, I'm a Christian, and then you start talking to them, you realize they have no comprehension of the gospel at all. We must be okay doing what the Bible says and saying that's not Christianity at all. Jesus warns against salt in name only. He warns us against Christianity in name only. I think he's also warning us against watering down the gospel. We could go into great detail about that, but I think one common way we see that right now in our time are through ad campaigns like the He Gets Us campaign. Maybe you saw that during the Super Bowl. You're going to see more of that. I'm told that a ridiculous amount of money has been spent on these He Gets Us commercials that you see on TV. You say, Pastor, what's wrong with that? They're talking about Jesus during the Super Bowl. Yeah, but which Jesus? Is it the Jesus of the Bible? They pull out phrases that sound good about Jesus, but the Jesus of the He Gets Us ad campaigns is actually a Jesus who doesn't condemn sin. He's not a Jesus who came to save sinners because he's not willing to talk about sin. So you see Jesus washing the feet of sinners. That sounds good. Jesus did that. But Jesus was willing to call them sinners. Jesus was willing to tell them to repent and believe and they would be saved. We must never water down the gospel in order to make Jesus more relatable. He is relatable. Have you missed what we've seen in Matthew's gospel? He's come to earth. He has been baptized into our situation. He's been tempted in every way like we are. He is already thoroughly relatable. And he's willing to call sin, sin. We must not water down the gospel. When you water down salt and it loses its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It can't be. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I'm afraid that many people are going to wake up one day who have embraced a watered-down gospel and realize they have no gospel at all. They have no Christ at all because they've watered down the truth of God's Word. That impure compound that they would find at the Dead Sea, once the salt has gone out of it, it's just worthless. You would just throw it out in the road so it could help build up the road. It's not even fit for the compost pile. Do you understand that? Saltless salt is not even good for fertilizer. It is absolutely worthless. So too is a Christless Christianity. Jesus doesn't want diluted disciples. When we play around with the world, we lose our purity and we're no longer able to even purify those who are around us. When we don't cling to the preserving power of the gospel, we lose the ability to be a preserving force in society around us. One preacher helpfully pointed this out through several passages of Scripture. He said it first starts with friendship with the world. The Bible talks about that in the book of James. It starts with friendship with the world, and then we become stained by the world, and then we love the world, and before you know it, we are conformed to the world. That's the downward trajectory of salt that has lost its saltiness. And what does Jesus say it's good for? It's good for nothing. It's to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's the same word he's going to use in chapter 7 when he talks about casting uh, pearls before swine and they trample it down with their hooves. Pigs trampling pearls. This is what saltless salt is good for. But it's even worse than that. We have our translations that say uh, if the salt loses its savor, if it loses its flavor, if it loses its saltiness, and we may just think it has something to do with taste. 
It's not actually tasting salty anymore, and so therefore there's a problem. But the idea is far worse than that. The Greek word that you have here gives us our English word for moron. Moron. Do I need to provide a definition for moron? We understand Jesus is saying that salt that has lost its saltiness is foolish. It's moronic. And that's not an evaluation of someone's intelligence. It's a judgment of someone's moral condition, not their mental condition. It's an issue of the heart, not an issue of the head. Jesus comes to the end of this Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You see, when the salt of the earth becomes foolish, it's no longer fulfilling its purpose. It's no longer good for anything. It's like that soldier who gets entangled in civilian pursuits. It's like the athlete who does not compete according to the rules. It's like the lazy farmer who does not receive the crop. You see, Paul warned about that type of Christianity in 2 Timothy 2. And Jesus warns against saltless Christians who are good for nothing except to be thrown out and walked on by the world. How many times do we see Christians being walked on? They try to be friends with the world and they're simply walked on by the world. Christians don't live as preserving agents, as salty saints, because they themselves are not pure and they can't purify anything around them. Adrian Rogers once said that many of our churches have become sacred societies for snubbing sinners when they ought to be salt shakers, getting out here and changing the world. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Verse 14, the light of the world. You say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus is the light of the world. Yes, absolutely he is. But just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, so too are Christians, believers, to brightly reflect the light of Christ in a dark, dark world around them. And I think it's Interesting, we don't have time to chase this rabbit, but it's interesting how you will see the world use language about shining your light. Let, me, let that be a warning to you that just because you see people use Christian words doesn't mean they use Christian definitions. You can go just about anywhere in society and read something about shining your light. But that can be a New Age idea as much as it might be a biblical idea. You need to make sure that when you're supporting someone, you know what they actually mean, even if they're using biblical phrases. The Old Testament has pointed to this Messiah who would come, who would be a light to the world. We've seen that before. We saw it in Matthew chapter 4. Pastor Laramie preached that. But here's something striking. When Jesus tells his followers, his disciples, who at this point are predominantly, if not exclusively, Jewish, he says, you are the light, not of Jerusalem, not of Israel, but of the world. You are the light of the world. And that probably was shocking to them because they had forgotten what God told Abraham. God told Abraham that from you I will bless all of the nations of the earth. We live in a decaying world. Is there anybody who would doubt that? We live in a decaying world so Christians must preserve because we are the salt of the earth. And we live in a dark world so Christians must shine because we're the light of the world. So Christ calls us to be salty saints and bright believers. We're to live in such a way that our lives brightly point others to the light of life, Jesus Christ. Now, it's hard for a lot of us today to fully understand Jesus' metaphor. 
Just as some of you don't prefer jerky, which would be the most common way we get salted meat today. I saw some of you, you weren't excited about jerky. We'll keep that in mind. Some of us don't fully understand darkness because we've lived in a suburban area all of our lives. Perhaps some of you were raised on a farm and you remember in childhood when it got dark, it got dark. But think about today. You can turn off all the lights in your house and you see the light from outside. You go outside, you see the light post. You see the lights from your neighbor's houses. If you're driving back towards Atlanta at any hour of the night, you see the brightness of the city far, far away. We don't really know what it's like to be truly in the dark. But you understand that as dark as this idea that Jesus has in view, that's how dark the world is without Christ. Without Christ, the world is so dark that we can't see the hand in front of our face. That's the spiritual darkness that our world faces. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night? You were looking for something that you needed, but you didn't want to turn the light on. I mean, after all, it's your house. You've lived there for a long time. You you don't need to turn the light on. You know where it is. Before you know it, you're stumbling in the darkness. And then 3 a.m., you're flat of your back, and you're wondering if you're even alive. You're not sure what's happened. You've stumbled in the dark. We live in a dark world that is stumbling itself around in the darkness. People think that they know their way, but they do not have life because they do not know the light. We are the light of the world to point them to Christ. You understand how this works. We lose our bearings in the dark. You can't distinguish danger from safety in the dark. Everything is distorted in the dark. This world is marked by darkness without any light apart from Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's why later in chapter 6, Jesus says, If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. See, the world is surrounded by darkness, and they don't even realize how lost they are. But you are a city on a hill, shining brightly in the darkness. If you've ever traveled to the Holy Land and they took you to a place where they would say this is probably where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And they would point in a particular direction and say, you see that city over there? At night, that city is lit up and you can see it far away. They said that's probably what Jesus had in mind. Other people would have thought about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the holy city, that being the light of the world because it's elevated, it's lifted up. That's where you would go to worship God. They would picture Jerusalem as being the city on a hill. And in America today, we're tempted to think of America as the city on the hill. After all, there was a Puritan named John Winthrop. When he came almost 400 years ago, he talked about America being a city on a hill. And by that, he meant if America lived out Christian ideals, we would point people to Christ. And I'm not sure how many people use that language in the next 350 years, but many of you are familiar with President Reagan using this language, speaking of America being a shining city on a hill. And with all due due respect to the former president, that's not what Jesus has in mind. When he talks about a city on a hill, he's not talking about Jerusalem. He's not talking about America. Jesus is speaking about the church. The church is is the city on the hill. Jesus is talking to his disciples, his followers. We are to be a shining light in a dark, dark world. And notice that Jesus did not say that you shouldn't hide a city on a hill. He didn't say that it would be difficult to hide a city on a hill. No, he said that it's not possible. You can't do it. It's not able to be hidden. You can't hide 
a city on a hill. I understand that in our church's nearly 200-year history, that has been a slogan at various times, that we are to be a light on a hill. That's a wonderful slogan. You understand that we literally are on a hill right here in the heart of our city. With all the things that could be said about the development of Palmetto, one thing that certainly must be said is that as our city continues to expand, our church is in the heart of the city. You literally cannot pass by or pass through our town without going past this church. My prayer is that we will be a shining light on a hill. We will be a light in the darkness that is our city and is our world because you understand as much as we love our friends and neighbors, if they are apart from Christ, they are in utter darkness. It doesn't matter how friendly they are, how long they've been a part of this town, if they don't know Christ, they're in utter darkness. We pray that our church would be a shining light on a hill. But you understand, we must be vigilant in this work. We can't rest on our laurels. We can't say because this church has been here nearly 200 years that nothing will ever happen, that we won't get off track. We must stay anchored to the cross of Christ. We must stay connected to the gospel and eagerly proclaim it. That's how we continue to be a shining light on a hill. You read through the New Testament, you see many churches mentioned, many that were faithful in their day, but if you travel to their location today, they are not an active, healthy church today. You can go to many places throughout church history where the Lord worked and famous pastors pastored mighty churches in their day, but those churches are dead because they did not stay anchored to the gospel. May we be vigilant to be a shining light on a hill. One man said a Disciple who does not glorify God and draw others to him by exhibiting divine righteousness is like a light that does not shine, like water that is, do- that is not wet, or fire that is not hot. You understand it doesn't work that way. Fire is hot, water is wet, and Christians should be lights that shine. Notice that all throughout this, Jesus says, you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He doesn't say you will be. He doesn't say you should strive to be, that this is your goal in the Christian life. If you are in Christ, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The question for you is how bright are you shining? Are you serving as a preserving agent in the world around you? One man has said that we cannot change what we are, but we can waste what we are. Jesus has said we are salt and light. Are you wasting what he has called you to be? You see, salt is applied externally, and it works itself in inwardly, internally. But light radiates from inward and works outward. It's amazing the analogy that Christ has given us. Warren Wiersbe speaks about this, and he says, Salt and light balance each other. Salt is hidden. It works secretly and slowly. Light is seen. It works openly and quickly. The influence of Christian character is quiet and penetrating, but the influence of Christian conduct is obvious and attracting. The two go together and reinforce each other. Conduct without character is hypocrisy. Character without conduct is disobedience. Do you understand what he is saying? If we try to live these things out, we look at the Beatitudes and we say, okay, the Beatitudes are mainly about our heart, so if we only focus inwardly, we focus on our character, but we have no conduct, then we are being disobedient to our king. But if we try to live out verses 13 through 16, if we try to be salt and light in our own strength, but we don't have the character of the Beatitudes, then we are absolute 
hypocrites. These go together. The Beatitudes and the calling of salt and light go together. It's who we are as Christians. Look at verse 15. Jesus has already said that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 15, he says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light in the whole house. Now, when you picture that in your mind, don't think candlestick. I understand that your translation may say candlestick, but when we think of a candlestick, we think of a wax, long, cylindrical thing that's only been around for the last couple hundred years. Picture instead in your head something more like a a genie's lamp, if you've seen Aladdin, just a basic uh, Middle Eastern lamp. And it's filled with oil in the middle, and it has a wick sticking up. And Jesus says, you wouldn't take that and then hide it. It's got everything that's needed, and even when he talks about what you would do with it, he says you put it on a stand, and it gives light in in the whole house. You understand, we do this even today with our floor lamps. If you have a floor lamp in your house, the bulb is not down on the ground. You've got it on a pole, and it's lifted high in the air so that it shines light throughout the whole house. You wouldn't hide it under a basket or under a bushel or a measuring basket. That would defeat the purpose. It would be a waste of oil. It would be a waste of the wick. No, you lift high the lamp that it gives bright light to everyone in the house. I can't help but notice that as Jesus gives these analogies, Yes, he's talking about how we're to live in the world, but he also mentions the home, and we're to shine brightly in the home. I don't think I'm pressing the metaphor too far because I'm afraid that too many Christians are eager to be bold and public, but when it comes time to live the light of the gospel in their home, they cower. I've seen it even in my short ministry that it's far, it's the case far too often that Christian parents walk firmly in the faith until their children are adults. When the children are out of the house, there goes the reason for the adults to actually be a part of the local church. And you understand going to church doesn't save you, but it is a fruit of a Christian. Far too many Christians, as soon as the children are gone from home, so too are the adults. They don't go, they don't go to church any longer. But sometimes it can even be worse than that. I've noticed that sometimes professing Christians, professing Christian parents, when they are pressed between the lifestyles that their children have chosen and following Christ, they will choose to affirm their children rather than submitting to Christ. You understand, we must live out the light of the gospel even in our homes. Even when our children rebel, even when they walk away from the faith, even when they call us every name of the book and call us hypocrites and everything, and they say that, no, you aren't really a Christian if you don't love me. And they mean it with their own terms. They filled in their definition of love, not the Bible's definition of love. You see, we need Christian parents who are willing to say, My son, I love you, but I can't affirm you in your homosexuality. My daughter, I love you, but I cannot affirm you in your fornication. Dear child, I love you more than words can express, but I must love you enough to tell you what God says. We must shine the light of the gospel, not even in our homes, but especially in our homes. Verse 16, Jesus says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Sometimes you hear people say, I'm just going to be a quiet Christian. 
I'm not really going to draw attention to myself. I'm not really going to do big, noticeable Christian acts of, of good deeds. I'm just going to let my little light shine. And you ask them, what does it mean to let their little light shine? And they don't have an explanation. What they mean is they're going to be uh, invisible Christians. They're not actually going to profess the name of Christ. They're trying to go under the radar. When Jesus talks about letting your light shine, it's clear that he's making that equal with doing good works. You see, we can't shine in silence and stillness. We must actually be doing good deeds. We must actually be doing good works. And you ask, well, what are these good works? What would Jesus have us to do? Well, remember, this is his sermon introduction. By the time the sermon's over, he's going to give plenty of concrete examples of how we're to do good works that glorify our Father in heaven. But can I give you just one example from the Bible? It seems to be clearly connected with the Sermon on the Mount. Write this down. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. You don't have to turn there, but Colossians 4, verse 6 Paul writes, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. It sounds like he's got the Sermon on the Mount in mind. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And you say, well, that sounds great, Paul, but what does that mean? In the parallel passage in the book of Ephesians, he makes it more plain. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. God says don't talk like a salty sailor. Instead, talk like a salty saint. Now, you may think you have the first part whipped, but what about the second part? The first part, you say, oh, I don't talk like that. I don't say those words. I haven't done that for years. That would never come out of my mouth. But what does come out of your mouth? Are you a salty saint? When you talk, are you building up? When people hear you speak, are they torn down by hearing you complaining and grumbling? Or are they built up? Are they graced by your words? You see, that's just one example God gives us in His Word. But Ephesians chapter 2 makes clear that God has created good works for us from beforehand. From before the foundations of the earth, God has created good works for you and me to do. You see, our Father prepared them. And when we do them, we glorify Him. People ought to be able to look at us and say, I see the family resemblance. They ought to be able to look at us and say, I see your Father in you. Like Father, like Son. Like Father, like Daughter. Are we doing good works to glorify the Father in Heaven? Understanding what Jesus is teaching about salt and light, I think, is helpful in at least three ways. Three things that we must understand as we begin to conclude this idea. Understanding what Jesus is teaching about salt and light, number one, makes clear that there is a distinction between the church and the world. There's a distinction. There's a difference between the church and the world. One preacher has said that when we cease to be different, we cease to be Christians. Now, we may all nod our heads at that, but let's think back. Let's be honest. How many times when we're sharing the gospel with somebody, do we try to make clear that we're really not that different from them? You like to have fun in life. We have fun as Christians. Never making clear that there's a world of difference between Christian fun and worldly fun. We try to do everything we can to say, oh, yeah, we're, we're just like you. I mean, yeah, yeah, we got Jesus. Jesus saved. But other than that, I mean, we're, we're pretty much just like you. 
We try to remove all the differences to be just like the world. Listen, let me be plain. If the only difference between you and your lost neighbor is how you spend 75 minutes on Sunday morning, then there is no difference between you and your lost neighbor. Jesus makes clear that there is a distinction between the church and the world. But he also says, understanding this, it ought to encourage us, particularly in our evangelism. As we seek to share the gospel, this passage ought to encourage us. Now, when you think about the Beatitudes, you say, yeah, God says, Jesus himself says that when we live like this, people will persecute us and we get worried about it. Jesus says, yes, but some will see it and they will praise the Father in heaven. Some will see the blessed life and they will persecute the children, but others will see the blessed life in action and they will praise the Father. Someone will see our good deeds and they will want to know about our good Savior. And when someone asks us this question, we must be ready to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. When somebody asks, why are you different from the world? Why are you willing to serve at a local elementary school where your children are not even students? Why are you willing to serve food bags to the community every month? Why are you willing as a church to operate a thrift store for the benefit of the community? When these questions come, we must, we must, we must be ready to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. If our good deeds don't lead to the good news, then we have failed our good Father in heaven. One preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. You see, we think we need to attract the world by being like the world, but God says we attract the world by being different, by being Christians, by being salt and light. When we understand this, the third thing it helps us with, it helps us to be meek. It helps us to be humble. When we realize who we are, And who God is. We are salt and light. Salt is cheap. Even in this economy, salt is cheap. Salt is insignificant. Are you okay with being insignificant in the eyes of the world in order to be used mightily in the kingdom of God? You understand, we take salt and light for granted. Are you okay with being taken for granted? With not being noticed? With not being praised in order for God to receive the praise? You see, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's who we are. We are weak and we are insignificant. We are salt and light. And the praise doesn't go to us. It goes to our Heavenly Father. You understand, we don't praise the light bulb We praise Thomas Edison for inventing the light bulb. We don't praise the salt. We praise the chef who used the salt. We are to be salt and light, doing good deeds, praying that the Lord will give us opportunity to share the good news in order to glorify our good Father in heaven. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we trust that there's nothing new in what I've said this morning, but we pray that it is true. We pray that it's anchored in your word, and we pray that your word would be planted deeply in our hearts, that we would understand it better perhaps than before, and we would be committed to live it out once again. Lord, we don't want to lose our saltiness. 
We don't want our light to grow dim. We want to shine brightly for Christ. Lord, we know that there are those who are here who are not in Christ this morning, and so we pray that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. They would repent and call upon the name of the Lord today and be saved. Those of us who are in Christ, we pray that we would be recommitted to our understanding of our calling to be salt and light in this dark world. We pray these things would be true in your son Jesus' name. Amen. We all must respond to God's word. For those of you who are wrestling with how to respond to Christ for the first time, know that I'm always happy to talk with you. I'm down here at the front during the length of this song, but I'm happy to hang around after the service. I would love to speak with you further about trusting Christ. But for all of us, I pray that we could truly sing, I am thine, O Lord. Would you stand as we sing?